Officially seven days from today, and I have really three words for you. Are you ready? In my house, when Kelly asks, my wife Kelly asks me the question, are you ready? I usually tense up very quickly and I sit up straight because I'm not ready. <laughs> I can even hear my family saying, that's true. Whether I'm being asked if I'm ready to go to church, or ready to go to my mom's for lunch, or ready for anything, I'm, I'm not ready. I, I haven't been thinking about these things. I'm, my mind's not in the details. I'm usually thinking about other things. And when it's time to go, I'm, I'm off like a firecracker, and I'm running through the house, brushing my teeth at the last minute. I'm, I'm trying to fix my hair, or looking for my keys, and by the time we pull out from the house and drive out to wherever it is that we're going, I usually need somebody to turn the car around and go around the block back to the house so I can pick up what I left behind. Today is our last Advent message before Christmas Day. Advent is another way of saying arrival. In French, you might recognize the word advenir. Advent is a period of time for getting ready to commemorate and also to celebrate the arrival of Jesus Christ. You might have heard the children refer to him as God in the flesh. I have this strong eye contact baby in front of me, but I mean, this is a reminder that uh, if you were reading through the Advent series on which this, this sermon series is based, the promise one that's being published by Christianity Today, uh, one of the writers wrote that God came in a form that is huggable, that is touchable, that is reachable. And we're here today, uh, one week from the day where we celebrate that day, we commemorate it. It's already happened. And we need to be ready for that commemoration. We need to be ready for that celebration. I don't mean being physically ready. I don't mean cooking all the food that you're gonna cook or cleaning the house in order to have the people over or um, buying all the presents. Those things are important. But what I'm talking about is being spiritually ready, to be ready in your heart to celebrate this arrival of Jesus. And there are really three facets to readiness that I want to explore, and I've articulated them, uh, these facets in the outline, as questions that we can ask ourselves. We can contemplate these questions this morning. We can also contemplate them during the week. And I've written them this way. The first question is, are you ready to see Jesus for who he says he is? Are you ready to believe Jesus and take him at his word? And are you ready to share Jesus' light with others in a cold and dark world? Now, to answer the first question, are you ready to see Jesus, we have to first ask ourselves, what do we really know about Jesus to begin with? And what do we base that knowledge on? Today, we're going to study the words that Jesus has to say about himself, the way that uh, Jesus originally had his words recorded in the Gospels, that is, the first four books of the New Testament in the Bible. Some of you don't know what kind of background I come from. I, my educational background is in journalism, and I worked for a short period of time as a reporter before getting on into, into software, but you need to know that these gospel messages are eyewitness accounts that were written 
right during Jesus' lifetime, by disciples who lived firsthand through everything that they described. And they were describing events that it's not just that they saw them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but hundreds of witnesses saw the events that are documented in these Gospels. Even thousands of people saw these things. So what we're going to read about Jesus, when I say that we're going to hear who Jesus really is from his own words, this is not a matter of opinion today. This is not what I think. This is what Jesus said. These words were written down for our benefit. It's reliable reporting that has stood up to public scrutiny for almost 2,000 years now. Let's look at what those words have to say. Now, the first scene that I want to talk about today, we're going to look at, uh, it takes place in the Gospel of John, chapters 7 and 8, and the scene takes place in the holy city of Jerusalem during a festival called the Feast of Tabernacles. So we live in the province of Quebec, and tabernacle, or a form of that, is something that we might hear almost every day except we don't hear it the way that it's intended to be said, and we probably hear it during some form of heavy traffic on the road. And many of us might not actually know what the word tabernacle means. We might not know why people of the Jewish faith still celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles to this very day. The answer is pretty straightforward. A tabernacle is nothing more than a temporary makeshift structure that you can put up and take down in the same day. In in modern times, we'd probably call it a tent. And it looks like a tent, too. It's small enough to fit a small family. During the Israelites, the period of the Israelites' great exodus out of Egypt and into the Promised Land, which, like the children said, took place hundreds of years, over a thousand years before Jesus' birth, um, God gave very specific instructions to his priests to construct a, a special type of tent, a very large tent, large tabernacle that they would call the meeting tent. You could see it on the screen behind me. Now, as the Israelites made their 40 year journey out of Egypt to the Promised Land, as they wandered in the desert, they would stop traveling at the end of every single day and they would set up this tent of meeting, and they build their whole camp around it. And at the start of every day, when they'd be ready to continue their journey, they'd have to tear it all down and make it ready for transport. Now, this tabernacle, God says, is where he would take up his physical dwelling to abide with his people during their exodus. And a huge part, a huge reason behind the Israelites traveling 40 years through to the desert is so that God the Father could re-educate and retrain his people to to place their faith completely in him again so that they would be able to depend 100% on God's power, on his provision, and on his deliverance. And God did that in the Old Testament through a number of ways. Every single day that they traveled through the desert, God would provide food and water for his people so that they didn't starve or die of thirst. Every day, God would travel ahead of the Israelites so they could follow him. In the daytime, he'd appear as a pillar of smoke, and in the evening, he would appear as a pillar of fire. And in the evening, God would be, his presence would be in this meeting tent 
so that he could be with his people and so that they could worship him there. Now, this all took place, as I said, well over a thousand years before Jesus' birth. In Jesus' time, during the first century, this Feast of Tabernacles was a seven-day festival commemorating God's faithfulness, God's provision, and God's salvation during the Exodus. And all this background that I've just shared is super important because we're going to see how Jesus is going to use this whole celebration's history and the imagery related to it and the metaphors to present himself as the ultimate fulfillment of God's same faithfulness, God's same provision, and God's same salvation through Jesus. Now, I read something from the American theologian Gary Burge. He does a great job describing how this scene in the, in the Gospel of John could have looked like. And while I read this, I want to share this image behind me uh, that I, I found nicely complements what I'm about to read, and maybe it would help stimulate our imaginations. Burge writes this. He says, The Mishnah chapter on Sukkah, or tabernacles, provides lavish descriptions of the light ceremony. There would be four large stands, very tall, that each held four golden bowls. And these 16 bowls were filled with oil. When they were lit at night, all of Jerusalem was illuminated. In a world that didn't have public lighting after dusk, this light shining from Jerusalem's yellow limestone walls must have been spectacular. Choirs of Levites would sing during the lighting while people danced in the streets, carrying torches and singing hymns. And on this final day of the seven-day tabernacle festival, Jesus is teaching in the treasury located within the court of the women so that both men and women could give offerings. So imagine this scene. In the very court where the lighting ceremony takes place, Jesus stands beneath 16 lit bowls of oil, and says that he is not only the true light for Jerusalem, but that he is the light of the world. Indeed, when we turn to John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus declares these words about himself. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, what did those words mean to the people who heard them? I'll tell you this much. The very first reaction that the religious leaders of the time had when Jesus said those words is that they publicly challenged him in the middle of the festival. They said, you can't just say that about yourself. Who do you think you are? And the more that Jesus interacted with them, the more offended they got until they got to the point that they were ready to pick up rocks and stone him. Let me suggest three short observations that I think are particularly significant in breaking down the significance of Jesus' words, I am the light of the world. We start with the first part, I am. In the Old Testament, God introduced himself to Moses using the name I am. In Exodus chapter 3, 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites, Moses. I am has sent me to you. 
And from that moment on, Jewish culture and tradition and literature would have cemented the association between these words, I am, and God. It's a description of God that exists outside of time and space. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. God perpetually present. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as I am in some shape or form over seven times. And he's introduced himself in a way that can't be dismissed as coincidence. I'm just going to share three of them. The first one we've already heard, I am the light of the world. That's in John chapter 8, verse 12. Later on in John chapter 8, Jesus says, before Abraham of the Old Testament was, I am. And in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. For Jesus to present himself in this way is quite frankly astonishing. In this kind of festival, with this kind of grouping of people that's assembled in the city of Jerusalem of all places, it's the big city. Everyone who heard this proclamation would understand that Jesus is saying, I am God. I am the light. Now, the Bible, as well as most major religions, will have certain associations with light, making uh, abundant use of it as a metaphor for life, for vitality, for wisdom, for knowledge, and darkness, in contrast, is also used as a metaphor for sin, and ignorance and confusion. But only Isaiah, the prophet, who wrote about the Messiah, that is to say God's planned Savior, only Isaiah associates the Messiah figure with light in a way that is uniquely prescribed to Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 7 to 11, the prophet describes the coming salvation of God's people, Israel, at the hands of a Messiah who would rescue them from the darkness and into the light. Isaiah chapter 9 reads, and again, the children said this earlier, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What's significant about Jesus' association with the light is that it's a very personal claim. It's an exclusive claim. Jesus is not claiming to be a light among many. He's not claiming to be a light for a while. He is the light, the one that Isaiah prophesied about, the Messiah, the Savior who's going to institute a kingdom where peace and justice and righteousness will reign forever. He's that light. And he's the light of the world, where Jesus' personal claim to be the light is absolutely exclusive. The offer that he makes to share that light is absolutely inclusive. Everybody is welcome to be a part of that. Speaking of the future Messiah, God proclaims in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 6 and 7, 
I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. Here he's speaking about the Messiah. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. He repeats this in a refrain in chapter 49, recording the words of God speaking about the Messiah, who says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel that I've kept. Mm -mm. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The generous heart of God is revealed in this passage, yearning not only to have a restored relationship with the people of Israel, but with the whole world, with Jews and Gentiles, with you and with me. This is who Jesus says he is. This is the picture that we need to get ready for as we approach Christmas Day. Because on this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, lit by the celebration fires that we read about, that were meant to remind the Israelites of God's temporary salvation from Egyptian slavery, Jesus declares that he is the instrument of God's eternal salvation from the slavery of our sins. Are you ready to believe in Jesus? The second scene I want us to see also takes place in the big city of Jerusalem, but this time it's much closer to the time of Jesus' death during the Passover festival. Huge crowds of people have come from all around to Jerusalem to worship God and present sacrifices to him over at the temple. And amidst all this excitement and all this commotion, something really interesting happens that deeply enriches our understanding of how Jesus is going to bring his light into the world. And it's not at all something that we would have expected. In John 12, we're told that during the festival, there's a small quiet scene in there that that we might read over of a, a contingent of Greek Jews who have come to Jerusalem in order to worship God at the festival. And uh, they find some of Jesus' disciples, and they ask a special request. They say, hey, disciples, can we, have, can we meet with Jesus? We've, we know he's here. We know he's at the festival. We've come from far. Can we have an audience with him? And the disciples take the request. They go off to find Jesus, and they communicate the request to him. And Jesus doesn't actually answer their request. But when they present it to him, Jesus answers In John 12, verse 32, oh, I'm sorry, verse verse 23, Jesus replies, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, then it produces many seeds. Now, if you can pick it up, Jesus is speaking about his own death here. It can be a bit opaque because he's still talking around the subject and he's using metaphors and referring to himself in the third person. But a little later on in the same passage, his language becomes much clearer and to the point. In verse 32 of the same chapter, Jesus says to them, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, 
I will draw all people to myself. And the Bible says that Jesus said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd spoke up, we've heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? And who is the Son of Man? And to this Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they're going. So believe in the light while you still have the light that you may become children of light. Quoting again from the theologian Gary Burge, he says now in this scene, the public revelation of Jesus is now complete. His signs have been displayed in full. Men and women must now come to terms with the revelation that has been placed in the world. Yet this is the mystery of Jesus' life. Even though light has come into the world, people still loved darkness instead of light. Jay Kim is pastor at Westgate Church in California. He's the author of the December 14 reading from the Advent reading that we've been doing. And he wrote something similar. He said that human experience is the paradoxical commingling of the love of darkness and the need for light. The love of darkness and the need for light. Maybe that's how you feel today. It's really hard to admit that we love the darkness. But then why do we spend so much time and energy and money to run from the light? I didn't know I was going to get some musical accompaniment. <laughs> Let's think about that for a second. In the darkness, we can live out all our prideful fantasies where we're the boss, where we're in charge. And truth, truth gets to be whatever we say it is. Right and wrong gets to be whatever we want it to be. And typically, we end up being in the right and everybody else ends up being in the wrong. In the darkness, no one can hold us accountable. No one can make us feel uncomfortable. No one can make us do anything that we don't want to do. Well, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty tempting to me. And at home, when my wife or my sons try to call me out on behavior that I've done, things I've said or done that I really shouldn't have, they do it because they love me. They do it because they're trying to shine a light into my life to show the contrast between who I am and who I could be. And naturally, when they do that, I'm very humble, and I, <laughs> I take it in stride, and I tell them that they're right, and I, I change my nasty ways. Of course, that's not what I do, right? I get, I get defensive. I get angry. I push them away. And if that's how I treat my family on the small stuff, how do you think my heart reacts when Jesus shines his light 
into my whole life, into my sin. That's why those Jewish religious leaders were so quick to get angry at Jesus, angry to the point that they started to conspire to kill him. Back in John 8, after Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world, he told those Pharisees in verse 24, he said, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, that I am God, you will indeed die in your sins. The darkness might be tempting, folks, but, but it's all a lie. It's just a smoke show. And if we stay there, we will die. Believe in the light while you still have the light. There's a painting that I'd like to show you. It hangs in my mom's house. It's painted by uh, a man named William Hunt in the 1850s. It's called The Light of the World. It might be hard to see from far away, but in it you can see Jesus is holding a lantern in one hand, and in the other hand he's knocking at the door and he's waiting for a response. The door has no visible doorknob on the outside. The door can only be opened from within. You have to hear Jesus knocking. You have to choose to respond. You have to open the door, and you have to let him in. I don't know where you're at, spiritually speaking, as you hear this message, whether you're with me physically here, if you're listening online live, or if if you're watching this recording days or weeks or months from now, Maybe this is the first time you've really heard about Jesus described in this way, and it's a lot to digest. Maybe you're a bit more familiar with these stories because you were raised with them when you were a child, and it might be digging up some difficult memories. Maybe you've been running from the light for a really long time, chasing as many distractions as possible to keep ahead of it. Or maybe you know all this stuff, but it hasn't felt particularly meaningful or real to you in a very long time. All I can say is that I'm here today to remind us that Jesus is very much alive today. This painting is a rich reminder of how he's standing right now at the door of your heart. You've heard his claims this morning. You've heard the eyewitness testimony Everything's been laid out for you. Will you believe in him today, is my question. I want us to take a short moment to consider this. And as we do that, I'd just ask you to close your eyes out of respect for the people around you. Focus on Jesus, the light of the world, here for you. The Bible says that God loves you. God loves you. The Bible says that you were knitted in your mother's womb, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. God loves you so much that he anointed his son Jesus to be the savior of the world, to be born just like one of us, to live a sinless life, to die on a Roman cross and satisfy the justice required for your sin and for my sin. 
For whoever believes in Jesus, the word of God says, that person will have eternal life. If this is the desire of your heart, you can open that door. You can invite Jesus in. You can do that right now. And if that's something that you'd like to do, while your eyes are still closed, no one, no one sees you. You can go ahead and raise your hand. You can raise your hand up high as though you were reaching out to open that door. There's nothing magical about that. You're just, you're just letting some, a visible sign on the outside reflect something that's happening on the inside in your heart. And if you do that, I'd be happy to pray with you after this service. I've asked Andrew and Ishi if they could play a small song to help us think about that.
Thank you so much, both of you. Believe in the light while you still have the light. The last question that I want us to ask one another today is, are you ready to share Jesus' light? This final scene takes place before the Passover festival. It takes place before the Feast of Tabernacles. It's away from the busy city of Jerusalem. We're we're traveling to a a small windswept hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's on this hillside that Jesus would give his most famous teachings that we would call the Sermon on the Mount today. You could read it in its entirety on your own in chapters 5 and 6 and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is where we read the essence of what it means to actually live the Christian life, what it looks like to follow Jesus as king and to be a member in his kingdom. You know, for all the terrible things that Christians have done throughout history to stain the reputation of Christianity, the world still marvels at Jesus' teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. Teachings like, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to them the other cheek also. Love your enemies and pray for them. Pray for those who persecute you. You can't serve both God and money. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. It's in this incredibly rich teaching Jesus gives that we find these words tucked in here, hinting at a time that has yet to take place. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. Here Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put that lamp under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Earlier, we heard how Jesus referred to himself as a kernel of wheat. And that kernel of wheat needed to die in order to produce many seeds. In optics, which is the study of light, We refer to refraction as the behavior that light demonstrates when it changes its speed. When light travels through air like this, every color in the spectrum that's visible to our eyes travels at the same speed. They travel together as one bunch and so it looks white. But when light travels in a different medium like glass, the colors in the visible spectrum start traveling at different speeds. The wavelength for red travels the fastest. The wavelength for purple travels the slowest. And so when they travel into a medium like glass, they fan out into a beautiful rainbow. And I find that that's a helpful image for me, just like the kernel of wheat to understand that we must reflect the source light in all our diversity. We're all different. 
but that source light that is Jesus seems to multiply. And we are to reflect the light and communicate the light of that source light. We need to fan out and shine the light from its source. The light, which is the knowledge of Jesus and the acceptance of his salvation, is meant to be shared with everyone. Jesus is entrusting his light in our hands, and that light isn't meant to be hidden under a bowl or under a lampshade or anything else. His light is meant to be shared. And so my question is, are you ready to share Jesus' light and hope to a world that so desperately needs it? Christmas is a time to share Jesus' light. So who are you sharing that light with? Who have you come across that's living in darkness, in fear, in spiritual poverty, in physical poverty? Who has God put in your life? Or who has crossed your path day to day that might need this light? Christmas is not a time to have a holy huddle around your light in your house while the rest of the world is outside in darkness. Share that light. So in conclusion, as we're getting ready for Christmas, are you ready to get to know Jesus based on what he says about himself instead of relying on other kinds of knowledge or maybe just not knowing yourself? Are you ready to take Jesus at his word, to believe that God is real, that Jesus is God, and that he died in order to serve justice against all our sin? Even if you only think that you're partly there in believing. The Gospel of Mark addresses that. You can pray that God would help you with your unbelief. And are you ready to accept the responsibility of being the light of the world? The privilege of sharing the good news of Jesus with the world around you? And of actually living the Christian life out the way that we've heard today in the Sermon on the Mount? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do this year over year. We, we anticipate with excitement the arrival of your son as though it's the first time, but we, we know that you came once. You're not born every year. We know that you're alive with us today. We know that you have asked us to believe in you and those that haven't, Lord, we pray that you would continue to work on their hearts to believe. If there are some today who have prayed that prayer for the first time, Lord, we pray that you would bless them with the confidence that you have heard and that you welcome them into your kingdom. For those who struggle with unbelief, Lord, we, we take on the words of the Gospel of Mark, and we say, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. To those who believe, Lord, we know that you also want us to be the light of the world. Our entire lives were meant to glorify you. Would you help us to do that, God? Would you help us to show your love in return by loving others? We ask that you give us the courage to do so by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you give us opportunities to do so. 
We ask that you help us to follow through with that so that we could glorify you. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Merry Christmas.